a regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm so glad you're with us on the program today. We're going to be spending some time with Dr. John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center talking about some uh, recent data. Uh, originally uh, asked Dr. Lott to come on to discuss his findings that the FBI has been undercounting the number of mass shootings that have been stopped by armed citizens. But that's not the only interesting uh, nugget of information that the Crime Prevention Research Center has uh, produced. We also had a, uh, I wrote about this this morning at Bearing Arms, as a matter of fact, a new survey done by the Crime Prevention Research Center, actually done by uh, McLaughlin and Associates on behalf of the uh, CPRC, uh, finding that, and this makes sense, that the more folks know about how a particular gun control law works in practice, uh, in this case, particularly red flag laws, the less likely people are to support them. Yeah, the more you know about the devil in the details, uh, again, the more opposition to these gun control laws grows. That makes sense, but I'm glad to see that uh, there's some data to back it up. Uh, So we've got a lot to talk about with Dr. John Lott. Let's get started. Take a look and a listen. Dr. Lott, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's good to see you, sir. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And you've got some really interesting scholarship coming out of the Crime Prevention Research Center. I wrote earlier today about uh, the polling that you did in conjunction with uh, McLaughlin and Associates that I found absolutely fascinating. The idea that the more people learn about how various gun control laws, in this case, red flag laws, actually work in practice, the less supportive they are. Um, that that's a really, really important finding. But so is this piece that uh, you published just a couple of days ago talking about uh, the FBI underreporting the number of uh, mass shootings that were stopped by civilians. Uh, the FBI reported, what, 4.4 percent of these mass shootings stopped by uh, civilians. But you say the correct number is at least 34 And last year, it was almost 50%. So I guess the first question is, how does the FBI get these numbers so wrong? All right. Well, it's not exactly right. Uh, What we're talking about are active shooting cases here. So active shootings are any time a gun's fired in public, uh, not involving some other type of crime. Uh, So you could have nobody even shot uh, type instance, uh, all the way up to a mass public shooting. In fact, a lot of their cases involve instances where guns fired and nobody's hit, or you just have a wounding, or just one person killed. May have only been one target in those attacks. So <clears throat> that's much broader than what would have been or what was a mass public shooting. We had done some earlier work uh, on just looking at mass public shootings. This kind of expanded it. Uh, so what happens is uh, the FBI, over a number of years, has hired Texas State University to go and try to compile these numbers on active shooting incidents in the United States. Um, police departments are picking this up, so they go and look at uh, news reports, do Google news searches for these things. And uh, they claim over the last uh, eight years, from 2014 through 2021, the FBI claims that there were 11 instances where these active shooting cases were stopped by civilians legally carrying guns. Uh, we look through this and we find 124 
but I make no claim that we found them all. Uh, basically, uh, the later years, I think, were more accurate um, than the earlier ones. Uh, as you say, the numbers go quite high. I mean, over the whole eight years, it's 34.4% of these active shooting cases have stopped. So, uh, so, so, John, how does the how does the FBI miss 113 of these cases? Uh, in some cases, you say that they were uh, they misclassified shootings, but they also did overlook some incidents, right? They overlooked a lot. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, uh, people make mistakes, but the problem here is that when I was working in the Department of Justice up until January last year. Uh, I actually, for some earlier years, pointed out that they had missed a lot of cases, uh, and they haven't been fixed. Um, I've also, I'd even pointed them out back in 2015. I had a piece that I published in a criminology uh, journal um, where I pointed out that they had missed a lot of cases back then. Again, they didn't fix those. So, you know, it's... You know, it's one thing to make a mistake. It's one thing to miss things. So I have to say, even there, it's a little bit strange credibility simply because they miss so many cases of instances where guns are used to stop these attacks. Uh, and we're talking about them being off by more than a factor of 10 uh, in terms of their count. And some of the other things uh, I'd point out when I was in the Department of Justice that they just misclassified them. So they would classify some of these individuals who stopped these attacks as security guards. You look, take the shooting at the church near Fort Worth. Um, these were kind of honorary, which is one reason why I think the initial news coverage gave it coverage uh, as much as they did, because they, first of all, the initial news reports all referred to them as security guards. But I've talked to uh, the man there who ended the attack, who shot the murderer there. And, uh, you know, uh, he says they don't even know how many people they had with concealed carry in the church at that time. It's someplace between 18 and 20. They didn't keep track. It's just that anybody who had a concealed carry permit was just made an honorary security guard that was not getting paid or anything else. And so uh, I interviewed the guy while I was at the U.S. Department of Justice. I included that in my report that I did. It doesn't seem to make any difference. Yeah, this is the really frustrating aspect of this, um, because not only do you say the FBI is not going back and correcting uh, the record, but you even uh, reached out to the Associated Press. I mean, they did a big write up uh, on these findings. Right. And you tried to provide them with with your data. What was the response? Right. Well, it's not just the Associated Press, but of course, most New York Times. I only really reached out to the Associated Press this time. But, uh, you know, they wrote nothing happened. Uh, I wrote him back after a couple of weeks, and Ed White at the Associated Press there said, well, uh, there was no reason for him to change or correct the story because he had accurately reported what the Texas University people had found there, which point of my note to him was uh, their report was flawed and that uh, 
you know, again, he didn't need to take my word for this. I provided the same thing to him that I provide for everybody, and that is a, a list of all the cases. They can go to our website at crimeresearch.org, uh, and uh, and then uh, if they go to the, the story at the top, there's a file that they can download with the data that we have. And, you know, they can check it themselves. We have a list of the, the news stories. And we have links to each of the news stories so people can check that out. One of the categories um, that you talk about, uh, you said that there were 25 incidents that were identified by the Crime Prevention Research Center where what would likely have been a mass public shooting was thwarted by armed civilians. There were another 83 active shooting incidents that they missed, you say. Can you talk about those 25 incidents and and how you determined whether or not this, this likely would have turned into a mass shooting uh, if well, well, an armed citizen had not been there. Right. Well, we are basically relying on statements from police in those times. The police were frequently interviewed in these types of stories. And you'd have a quote from the police officer or the captain or the lieutenant, whoever was the spokesperson uh, on the incident. And they'd say they believed, you know, fortunately there was a armed citizen there and it, uh, they hadn't been there, it's likely many lives would have been lost. You know, those types of statements. Okay, okay. So, uh, again, this, th- these are, and again, these are real incidents. I mean, you, you're able to find these looking through news reports. And I uh, clicked on uh, uh, the link to your, uh, to your uh, uh, report talking about highlighting some of these 25 incidents. For instance, uh, Portland, Oregon, gunman opening fire, shooting three people inside a gentleman's club. Man with a valid concealed handgun permit follows the gunman outside and fatally shoots him. Uh, the nightclub owner calls the man a hero for saving the lives of others. I mean, again, that that clearly uh, was an incident. Three people already were shot. There's no reason to believe that he was uh, he would have stopped then. So if you can find these incidents, uh, why why how how is the FBI missing all of these stories and all of these cases? I don't know. Maybe you can get a response from the Texas State University people, but who they hired. I mean, I don't know how much money was spent on it. I know uh, the U.S. Department of Justice has given uh, this active shooter program at Texas State University something like $66.9 million uh, over the last decade or so to go and do this, as well as other things. It's not the only thing. I've tried asking how much money that they've spent just on this one project and they have refused to provide that information. Um, and if, have you spoken to any of the researchers at Texas State University uh, and, and, you know, uh, uh, talked about your findings and what they're missing? Yeah, I think we may have a quote in the piece, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, they basically say, look, you know, we tried to get everything here. We may have missed stuff. Look, I have it in writing from the FBI people when I have approached them in the past that they were missing uh, something, but uh, they have they never went back and corrected it. So, um, and I've actually had kind of a journal debate back in 2015 with uh, some people at Texas State who are doing this, pointing out stuff. You know, you know, it's fine. They can acknowledge that they are missing something, but Fix the data, fix the cases that are there. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it's not just the Associated Press, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, media all across the world are using uh, 
this flawed uh, information from the FBI. You know, there's a huge difference. I, you know, we've been talking about the numbers, but there's another problem uh, that we haven't really talked about, and that is one of the things that I tried to make clear when I was at the Department of Justice is that you need to separate out those instances that occur in places where people are allowed to have guns versus instances where you have a gun-free zone, because we're talking about law-abiding citizens here. If it's really, you know, a place where they're banned, you know, there are different types of things, you know. You can be requested to leave, uh, you know, or you can be banned, you know, it can be a crime for people being in certain areas where they go. And, uh, uh, if they're law-abiding citizens, they're less likely to carry in places where they're banned. And so uh, you can't really expect them to go and stop those types of instances. And so no. I can, what you find then is that over 50% of these active shooting cases are stopped in, in places where people are, people are allowed to carry. Uh, in 2021, it goes up to 51%. But in those gun-free zones, uh, not so much. We're law-abiding individuals, as you say, are subject to, you know, maybe a fine, maybe a trespassing charge in New York State, a felony offense in years in prison. Um, this is, again, this is such important research. Uh, we're going to include a link to uh, to your findings uh, in our story, but I would encourage everybody uh, who's watching this to, uh, to, to go to Crime Prevention Research Center's website, uh, it's uh, crimeresearch.org because this is really important stuff. And we need to share this news because, as you say, the, the legacy media is not interested uh, in, uh, you know, reporting anything that might indicate uh, armed citizens save lives. Um, I don't know if there's bias at work on the part of the uh, FBI here, but I do know that this is important news that we should be talking much more about. Well, you know, uh, people should put pressure on them to respond and do this correctly. When I've written the FBI recently about it, they just, they're not willing to do anything. I mean, they're just, they won't respond to corrections or anything else recently. So, you know, somehow uh, we have to get politicians and others in Congress to put pressure on the FBI to do the right thing. I was going to say, maybe there'll be some folks on Capitol Hill who will be uh, interested in this data. Have you had any conversations with uh, members of Congress about your findings? Uh, only Thomas Massey. Uh, okay. The House Judiciary Committee. So hopefully that will, you know, he'll press them when they come to testify. I hope so. Uh, Dr. John Lott, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for everything you do uh, in terms of trying to bring uh, facts to light here in what is, uh, you know, obviously an emotionally charged debate in many cases. Uh, but we do appreciate uh, your research, and I certainly appreciate you joining us on the program today. Well, thank you very much, Cam. I appreciate you being there. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. Dr. John Lott with the Crime Prevention Research Center here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I appreciate Dr. Lott being with us on the program. Looking forward to having him back again very soon. Now let's turn our attention to today's armed citizen story. Uh, our good deed of the day uh, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a, a case out of Milledgeville, Georgia. Here's the uh, headline. Drive-by shooting suspect. No stranger to local authorities. No, apparently not. Uh, and this, thankfully, um, nobody was killed in this drive-by shooting, but uh, 
seems to be more luck than anything else. Uh, Travis Terrell Simmons, one of several individuals uh, uh, arrested on multiple counts of aggravated assault and other criminal charges over the weekend. There's a fourth suspect who's uh, still being sought. Uh, there were nine adults and four children in the vicinity when the drive-by shooting began, according to police in Milledgeville, Georgia. And he says any one of them uh, could have been hit by the bullets that were fired from multiple guns. Uh, Travis Terrell Simmons, as it turns out, has had a number of encounters with local police over the past couple of years. Uh, the Milledgeville Police Chief, Dre Swickord, telling the uh, Milledgeville Union recorder that he's been, quote, responsible for a number of crimes in the area over the years. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how old Mr. Simmons is. I don't have an age for him. Actually, I, yeah, I do. He's like 23. Maybe, depending on his age. He was 18 back in July of 2018 when he and another man were arrested following a car chase where authorities found the apparent possession of stolen guns. Yeah, Simmons was uh, 18 at the time, charged with one count of theft by receiving stolen property, as well as uh, instruction of a law enforcement officer. Um, he is currently on probation. Not sure if it's for that case or for another case. Uh, he's expected to appear at a probation revocation hearing sometime soon. But uh, again, you do have to wonder if uh, Mr. Simmons, again, well known to local authorities, why, why isn't he well-known to corrections officers instead, or at least more well-known by corrections officers than uh, officers on the street? Uh, today's Armed Citizen story, in the right place at the right time, willing able to do the right thing to uh, help out neighbors and his own family. A uh, West Virginia man who, by the way, is running for office uh, unopposed, uh, it, it should be noted. So uh, I don't think this guy was doing it for the uh, the campaign press. Um, instead, uh, this, uh, candidate, uh, Mark Ross, he is a, uh, a running unopposed for, uh, the house of delegates in district 28 in West Virginia, uh, was at home the other morning when he heard about a guy in the neighborhood who was trying to get into homes, uh, a woman named Caitlin Kelly, uh, was the first to, uh, see the man. Apparently she said, uh, shortly before nine o'clock. Uh, in the morning, she heard somebody opening her car door. She looked out. She saw a guy walking on her porch. In her words, uh, quote, it looked a little out of his mind. Uh, then the man tried to get through her front door. She said, thankfully, her dog was there, jumped at the door, jumped at him. So then he took off and went across the street towards her neighbor's house. He opened the door of an outbuilding. That's when she called her neighbor as well as 911. Uh, Mark Ross lives nearby. Got a call that the suspect had been seen heading towards his daughter's home. His wife was there at the time babysitting their grandkids. Well, his wife was at a doctor's appointment. He said, they're not going to bother my grandbabies for sure. So he grabbed his pistol, went over to his daughter's house. He said he spotted the guy trying to get in through the basement. And he said, that's why I told him to get on the ground. He started to run, but uh, he convinced the man to stop about halfway across the yard. He said, I kept telling him to stay down, not to move. He says he held the suspect at gunpoint for about half an hour, by the way, uh, until West Virginia State Police arrived and ended up arresting the uh, suspect identified as 29-year-old Roy Ward. Uh, Ross says, uh, I, for one, am not going to stand around and let thugs and drugs take over our community. Neighbor Caitlin Kelly says the man definitely would have gotten away if Mark hadn't been there and done what he did for us. We thank him very much. And luckily, that man is not out running around doing the same things to other people. So, again, in the right place at the right time, we will able to do the right thing. I know we say that for our good deed of the day. This was a good deed. Also a defensive gun use. And like the vast majority of defensive gun uses in this country, uh, the trigger wasn't pulled. The presence of that firearm was enough to stop the crime from escalating any further. And uh, congratulations to uh, Mark Ross. And uh, looking forward to seeing what he has to say about our right to keep and bear arms. 
when he is uh, in the West Virginia House of Delegates. Finally today, our good deed of the day. Yes, once again in the right place at the right time, willing able to do the right thing. Some neighbors helping neighbors in uh, Frost, Minnesota. One neighbor in particular, a, a farmer who was injured earlier this year and uh, was really struggling to try to bring in his crop this fall. Uh, Scott Legreed was injured in an accident. His uh, bean crop ready to go, but uh, he is still physically unable uh, to uh, bring his harvest in. So his friends and neighbors and family in Frost, Minnesota, came together on Tuesday to harvest his entire crop. Yeah. Uh, Lori Osland. So we got a list of farmers from Scott that said that they'd already offered to help him take crops out. So I got on the phone. I called all the farmers. We had a good turnout here today. They brought trucks and combines and grain wagons, and it's a good deal for Scott. This is actually not the first time that the community has come together to help the uh, Legree's family 11 years ago when Scott Legree's father passed away. Neighbors came out and did the same thing. Scott Legreed says that he hopes that this will be a lesson for others. He says, don't be afraid to ask for help. If you need help for anything in your life and somebody offers it, you know, willingly, there's a reason why they offered it to you. They care about your well-being and they want to do good for you. 18 community members there in Frost, Minnesota, showed up at uh, Legree's property, harvested the bean crop, got together for lunch as well. And uh, again, finished the job, got it done. Lori Oslin says, um, Scott Legreed, quote, would do this for somebody else in a heartbeat. So he's just that kind of guy that we felt that we needed to do this for him. And again, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help a neighbor in need. Uh, our thanks goes out to all the folks there in the Frost, Minnesota, for looking out for their neighbor in need. That is going to do it for this edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information. But uh, listen, we've got so much going on these days. This program's not enough. You got to go to BarryAndArms.com. You got to check it out multiple times a day because there is always something going on when it comes to your right to keep your arms. And we've got you covered there on the website. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member. Just go to BarryAndArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you get a significant savings on your VIP membership. And as our way of saying thanks for showing your support, we're going to give you exclusive news stories, analysis, content you won't find anywhere else. Because your support does matter. And it really does make a difference. So thank you for being uh, my good deed each and every day as a VIP member. Looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and be free.